Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, our guest this week is an international philanthropist and retired consumer products and food industry vice president with more than 30 years in both the private and nonprofit sectors. Currently, Robert N. Johnson focuses on brand development rejuvenation, organizational cultivation, and client connectivity through candid motivational leadership. Now, together, we'll review the role of diversity and inclusion and discuss why a cost-center approach no longer works anymore. We'll also talk about the importance of a cultural legacy for large organizations and why we should be much more hopeful for the next generations in our quest for a more human-focused leadership. So before we get started, click on the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can stay in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Robert, great to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Glenn, uh, it's just a great to be here. I appreciate the honor of uh, joining you and the crew and uh, watching uh, and listening to some of your previous podcasts and also reading your articles. You do a phenomenal job. So keep on going. Thank you, Robert. I really appreciate that very much. So, Robert, you know, you're, you're quite the Renaissance man. What is it that stimulates your thinking and, and prompts you to take action? Ooh, stimulates my thinking. Um, I think it's multi-generational. I do think some of the things that stimulate us is uh, um, uh, inherited, you know, innate. Um, and then from there, we make our own choices from curiosity. So uh, through observing my, my folks, my parents, my elders, and seeing how they solve things. But uh, we're a family of books. I mean, you can see books are my best friends. And so I watched them read and I used to sit at their feet. So um, listening and observing is what, uh, what I usually start with. And then I read about it. Well, this takes us to uh, the follow-up. I mean, you shared with me offline that uh, it's first your mind and then your library that are your most favorite places in the world. I mean, enlighten us because uh, I feel like there's a story to be told. Oh, uh, well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of people who wait until they earn or collect or save enough money to travel. But I learned at an early age, I could travel in my mind. Um, of course, as a child, you start traveling, uh, at least we're old fashioned conservative family. You travel in church through the Bible, right? But um, when other people were uh, buying candy, if you look over here, these are books that I purchased when I was eight years old. Wow. And then I have one of the first books that I purchased also. So I was traveling in my mind, uh, reading what I was not able to read in school 
well, what I wanted to read. So I had to read what they wanted me to read, but I also had the opportunity to read what I wanted to read. So, so Robert, maybe this kind of takes us to this tension that we're feeling today, not just in society, but also in uh, when you think about institutional uh, living, mm-hmm. uh, is that um, you, you said it best. There were the books that you had to read, and then, then there were the books that you wanted to read. I mean, you clearly saw your, your, your ability to travel in your mind as maybe your own form of discovering your sense of self, your, you know, what mattered to you and the impact and influence that you wanted to create in, in the world at a very uh, early age. What, what is the power of reading uh, taught you about uh, humanity and, and taught you about uh, the importance, uh, important responsibility that we have to perhaps um, rejuvenate the old norms and create new ones. You know, um, one of the things, a lot of people are trying to find themselves. I never tried to find me. Um, I actually tried to find a sense in you. I tried to understand the sense in others. A lot of people are on this quest for self. I'm not on a quest for myself. Um, maybe it because I was a small kid that was always bullying and I had to, are always being bullied and I had to find alliances. So while you're in search of alliances as a young kid on a playground or walking through different neighborhoods, rich one, poor ones, you can you name it, on your way to school and to school and to and from work, alliances are key. So it was less about, it's always been less about me, more about, about understanding what others needed. And in doing that, I think that is what has helped me um, in my career, you know, and through reading instead of watching someone describe it on TV or listening to the news, my own research allowed me to verify things. I do not allow someone to talk about somebody's speech and pick the highlights. Mm-hmm. I will read the speech of a, of a Russian leader or a Chinese leader or an American leader. I mean, just a couple of days ago, I was reading Hardin's speeches because there's times, there's things that are going on today that mirror, mirror what happened after World War I. So um, I prefer to learn and then speak from um, knowledge or listen from a point of knowledge. Well, it seems to me as if you are grasping for wisdom uh, to try to, in, in finding uh, the validations of life, of why things are happening. A, go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. I had two wishes as a child. Um, I asked uh, heaven or God for two things, never for anything material. I asked for wisdom and I asked for discernment. I asked for wisdom and discernment. And that's the quest that I've been on ever since I was a kid. Like, why else would I still have? I mean, I moved many a times through high school and college, and I still have books from the early 70s that I purchased by cutting lawns and shoveling snow. So, but that takes work to get those things. Robert, it seems to me, and again, we haven't talked about this. Uh, it seems to me that you've experienced some resilience and some adversity in your life. Can you perhaps share something that might enlighten us when you consider all the uh, disruption and chaos that we're experiencing today? You know, I would say um, that there, I, it's just a part of everybody's journey. You know, some, you know, it's just what we go through. The question is how we take it and handle it. So I would say that um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't say anything's unique. 
I would say that, um, you know, I've had a family or myself have been um, targeted by majority minority. You take a pick. Um, usually when you're not the, um, the big dog in the room, you're going to be targeted regardless of who you are. Mm-hmm. If you're not um, somebody's underling and nobody's saying that's my guy, you're going to be targeted. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out how, how to maneuver through it. I just, I have never been a person like what I'm sad. I'm very saddened to see today. There's so many people who introduce themselves when you're first meeting them or they're first meeting everybody or they come on stage. They're like, I am a product of the following issues that happened in my life. That's what they open with. Hmm. And then they say, but I'm this. And I'm like, no, not everybody needs to know that you were from this type of family or your parents did this, that, and the other. I just want to know you. And then we can get to that other stuff. Um, So I would say that whatever has happened in society has happened to our family. You know, uh, we're not special. The question is how you were raised. And we were raised to take how we respond to it. And uh, I think I would say my brothers and sisters and I, majority of them, opted, uh, as our parents did, to take the high side of the road of whatever happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the old Southern comment that folks would say is the Lord will provide, you know, and uh, but they provide while you're doing. So, yes, there have been challenges, I, especially. Um, but you know what? The challenges I went through, um, some are horrific, some are pretty wild, but that's a whole different discussion and book. But um, figuring out how to maneuver through them hmm. and listening, asking people who are supposed to do their job and protect you, but didn't see a value in you. Uh, that made you wonder. Um, legacy of being in places for decades and being an honorable family known as readers, known as workers. And then when you had to call certain people to do what they were supposed to do and paid to do, they said you didn't matter and they didn't go through the steps that they were supposed to do. Even horrific cases that would actually bring tears to your life, which I'm not going to discuss here. Then you realize that there are certain things that you just have to do. So nobody else has to deal with that. And those who are on payroll to do for other people do what they're supposed to do when they're on those payrolls to do it. You know, I was going to ask you the following question, but I think you already gave me the answer, but I'd, I'd love for you to maybe add a few more points to it. I, I'm enjoying uh, your thoughts, Robert, as always, you know, so the, the question was, well, what, what prepares you, you uh, to serve as an unfiltered test of reasonableness? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I think the, uh, you're forever learning on how to do that, but, uh, I think you have to have quantitative interests and skills too. I think there are a lot of people who deal, who think they deal in logic and understand history, but if you don't understand the numbers, it, it's only a partial story. And then there are people who understand the numbers and don't understand the history. And I think there's a, a blend of both. Um, uh, I think it is, um, well, I believe it relates to the ability to read, do research, but connecting the dots, mm-hmm. connecting the dots is huge. But you learn through connecting the dots, watching other people and how they think and solve, but connecting the dots. And that takes a lot of practice. 
Well, I've always felt that when one is connecting the dots, they're, they're really maximizing the utilization of resources. Um, they're, they're, they're really living with this entrepreneurial spirit uh, in search of you know, what's possible and uh, in their quest to build momentum. How do we find a, a place and space to build momentum uh, during these uncertain times, uh, Robert? You know, were there, were there ever any certain times? And, no, and that, you know, I asked that question because like, you know, every politician gets on and says, well, this is the most important election ever. Yeah. And then you got a good number of us going, well, didn't you just say that? And if you keep saying something is the most important ever, and I'm just joking with you, but there's a oh, point no. in that. Um, and, you know, I think at a micro level, um, for a segment of the population anywhere in the world, these are the most tragic and toughest times ever. At a macro level, I think this is the best time to live in humankind. This is the best time in the history of humans walking upright to live at an aggregated level as a male, as a female, especially as a female, as a minority at an aggregated level, yeah. um, as someone who speaks a different language in another country, best time at an aggregated level, especially in North America. Um, when it comes to wars at an aggregated level, best time ever. And um, so I know that there are pain going on. There's pain going on out there. But I think the lack of understanding statistics and numbers and believing the facts makes us probably a bit more emotional than we should. So, for example, there's these articles out now talking about a reduction in uh, life expectancy. Hmm. Well, even during the last election, they were talking about or the one before they were talking about, hey, a life expectancy for this one certain segment is down. And when you look at it, it's like, what? It'd be, we're looking at aggregated numbers. Okay, it's down three months. It's down six months. What the heck does that? Okay, what does that mean? We're still living a whole nother generation or lifetime more than the people 100 years ago. So the, the thing about the concern I have with us as a country, us as a people, if we don't figure out how to be to have a level of gratitude and appreciation with what we have attained, not to be con totally content and comfortable, then we won't know how to appreciate it. And then we will lose it. And then we'll look back. So, so Robert, let, let me twist you back to something you said earlier is through this question, what did you learn about gratitude while being bullied? In the moment, you don't know it. But upon reflection, you make adjustments. I have helped people who were in accidents, who were bloody. And I was helping and I ended up getting hit in the head by somebody else that said I shouldn't be helping. And then when I tried to press charges, they were like, no, if you had defended yourself, we would have taken you out. So, you know, you have different situations where you try to do good and you're targeted. There's certain things you can't do then. And when you and you go through the processes and you learn that the processes aren't fair, but you just got to take the high road. You know, um, I would say. I don't know if I've ever fully learned, you know, I just ask I've always asked for heaven to to uh, just like um, 
Moses asked uh, God to have somebody speak for him. He had Aaron help him. You know, I've always asked for, um, you know, some spirit or power to speak through me so that um, it could be like the synapses. You know, it's beyond my control. I don't know if that helps, but um, I think when you're going through it, because I've gone through it corporately, I'll give you a corporate example. I remember um, LPGA. We sponsored the LPGA. Love women's golf. Respect them very highly. Um, I went to my first LPGA event. We had a junior person that they were trying to promote. Like he was one of the guys and everything like that. And he he's, comes from a golfing background. His parents ran the park services at a major city. And he understood LPGA because he had gone to like four or five of them beforehand. So there's certain protocols when you're on a course that you know or you don't know. Some of us just don't know them. So we come back after an LPGA up in Oregon that we did with a major retailer. Now, just so I'm clear, LPGA, Ladies Professional Golf Association. Thank you very much. Ladies Professional Golf Association. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So anyway, so there was a protocol thing I didn't do on a fairway or something like that. Uh, Not that I moved anybody's ball or anything like that. So anyway, um, the next Monday when we're having going through the numbers for the uh, for a team meeting, some of my peers, stock option peers, too, they started joking about me saying, yeah, Rob. But they were joking about me trying to embarrass me in front of more leadership and trying to talk down about me in front of the broader group. Now, keep in mind, I'm the one of the only I was literally the only chocolate guy, black, Hispanic, you know, name it at this level. Um, so anyway, uh, so they're joking about me. And I asked him a question. I said, so who would you expect more from? The guy who had already been to four or five LPGA events or the guy that's been to one? <laughs> but yet you're saying the junior is wiser than I am. But didn't he have more experience than I? So the senior person had one experience, the other person had close to five and had lived it a lifetime. So explain to me what is humorous. Hmm. But you have to learn how to deliver. And I didn't have to go through all that last part, but I just asked that question and I kind of get it. You hope that the people that are bullying you, when you give them a message, sometimes you give it to them subtly, some get it. Sometimes you have to go, you know, so they really get it. and uh, those are draining because there are many a times where I have to cowboy up and, uh, you know, and then, then they have to cower, you know, and being a numbers guy, you just, just got to take it to them. What's the lesson here, Robert? The lesson is be present. Um, be present. Listen. I know it takes a lot of energy. Be real red. Figure out where you can be quantitative. Um, one of the things I learned at working at Procter & Gamble, I've worked at Kraft and Procter & Gamble, retired from Kraft, but one of the things I learned at Procter & Gamble is be able to solve the so what. And a lot of people talk and they never solve the so what. A lot of people talk and they never solve what's in it for me. They think about themselves, but you're supposed to be thinking about what's in it for them because they're sitting on the other side of the table going, what's in it for me? And that was impactful for me. So my whole life, I've always tried to solve what's in it for the person seated at the table. And that's what I've done for my clients. I ran to the problems when everybody else ran away from them. So something like personalization is something that you've really led and lived 
your entire life. Mm. Oh, yeah. and, and now uh, we're saying that personalization will force institutions to take uh, big transformative leaps. I mean, why did it take so long to recognize the obvious, something that you've lived all your life? It takes long because the odd person is not in when we, you and I came along. And now they're trying to say the odd person is in. And I think companies need a balance of, they have to redefine what consultancy and partnerships are um, because um, you really need a set of consultants that aren't a cover for an exec that doesn't have backbone to make a decision, you know? Um, and I think organizations need to know how to reach down in their organizations and say, people like myself or others used to be dismissed. <laughs> you see what I mean? And, uh, but every now and then you'd find somebody who goes, but you know what? That guy might have a point. Let's let him run with it. If he fails, we fire him. If he wins, we'll promote him and give it to somebody else that some, give his assignment to somebody else because he built it up. Um, I think, how do we teach a set of people that look for, um, conform, um, conformism to allow that, yes, you need a level of standard operating procedures, but sometimes it's okay to deal with that divergent person, especially if they care about the end game of where you're going to. And then you might have an entrepreneur right in your, right under your nose. Exactly. Exactly. So on that note, um, why, why, or do you think that, I mean, let's, talk about something that's a real hot topic now, and mm -hmm. it's diversity, equity, and inclusion, Robert. Do you, do you think that this is bringing us together or is it pushing us further apart? What's your take? Uh, ooh, okay, well, there's two ways to look at it. Are you talking about the role or are you talking about their mission and what they want are supposedly trying to do? Let, let's take, let's address both of them. Let's talk about the role. I don't like the role. I don't like any role. Let's be very specific. I don't like any role that does not have money. Then they have to go to somebody else for it. Does not have power. Right. A role without money and a role without power where they have to seek it through someone else. And a role that when you go through that role, they go nowhere. So a question I have for you, a question or a question. The minute somebody becomes director of diversity or VP of diversity or C-suite diversity and inclusion person, after that role, where do they go? Are they rotated to a director of finance role? Are they given a plant to run? Are they given a sales territory? Will we move them into customer service? Will they do a, an IT assignment? I, I am very concerned about roles like that, that don't really understand the overall organization. I get that there needs to be somebody with some level of expertise, but you know, I would as well would like to see possibly a rotation of functional leaders where they know they have to go in that role. And if they fail, they get clobbered. And if they succeed, they get rewarded. And you, put, and you put it on the legacy guy. You may staff them up with some other people, but you need some of the people to have to own it. 
you know, um, so I struggle with those roles because they become, and I also struggle with them because uh, though I respect a lot of the people in them, I've seen two things happen in those roles. I've seen highly talented, functional people in finance, engineering, you name it. And they're mostly black minority uh, and, um, you know, or whatever specialized group that they go, you know, somebody at the top goes, we think we need you in this role. (laughs) But what the person doesn't know is they're hurting the organization, too, because they're stepping out because you may have been the only black or Hispanic in finance that we have. But now you're the diversity person. So you're no longer running the money. You're no longer a functional leader. You're no longer a dean of academics or education. You're over DNI. I get the intentions of it. But the minute you take yourself out of a functioning role where you own the hiring, you own the number, the profit and loss, the operations, the standard operating procedures. We're just going to be back here again. Yeah, I mean, you just validated why a cost center approach to growth just doesn't work. But what you also enlighten me with is that the role itself is empty. In other words, its role is to primarily do what? And again, track all the baby. Track and rack. <laughs> track and rack, baby. Track and rack. Hey, we're not in the quotas, but we're tracking and racking. And you know what? I'm not saying tracking and racking needs to be done, doesn't need to be done, but that could be done by somebody who else is in a functional role. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and exactly. I, in other words, well, I'm with you. Um, and I didn't even know we we're going to go here, Robert, but it's clear. That, oh, we went here. You got oh, me going now. No, I like it. Look, I've always believed that. We may talk role, for another two hours. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, the role really, the fact that we give it a role uh, is the issue. Uh, because everyone should be owning this. And unfortunately, we continue to silo uh, functions like this that are about not just the numbers, uh, it's about the system. It's about behavior change. Well, it's about lack of courage, too. Yeah, and we got so many people lack of courage. So you have a number of examples. I'll give, I'll give you an Air Force example from a number of day, uh, years ago. And I was looking at some data and I read a couple of books on this. Okay. We should have a ton of minority pilots, especially black ones. You know why? Because after World War II or during World War II, we had hmm, close to 900 Tuskegee Airmen. All right. You know, so they came through. Um, uh, and I know my numbers pretty well. All right. So that's a lot. Okay. Granted, the majority, there was a lot more, right? Yeah. But where did they go afterward? You know, we know a lot of the Air Force went down, but a lot of them could have been flight instructors. Many of them flew in the Korean War. Some of them flew in the Vietnam War. So in the 70s, I'll give you the 70s. And I was just reading a gentleman's book. uh, It's called The Air Force Black Ceiling. And it re-verified some of my information. A really good guy. and. In the 70s, we had close to 1,400 minority pilots, mostly black. You get this new guy in who creates this mentor system. I think they called it the Creech system or something like it was a general. And you get a a guy like that. They had no DNI up until then, right? You get a guy like that who has a lot of power and other people who don't like people like you and I. When they started doing reductions, even though in the time period where the reduction was only supposed to go four down four or five percent, 
that uh, about to say a bad word, that 1400 went down to 500. The over 11, the over 13,000 number hardly went down any, maybe 12,000. So you had a group of people that were once, what, well over 10% of the total that dropped to 4%. Now, how the hell does that happen in a six year period? Yeah, unacceptable. So the point that I say is that, and so you can wipe out a generation because it takes decades to make great pilots, especially with combat uh, experience. So back then you're talking about late 70s, you had pilots that had Korean, Vietnam war experience, right? And other experiences. All right, I give that. Fast forward. We don't even have those numbers today. So now you have over 20 years of people saying, well, I don't know if there can be black fighter pilots. Where do they come from? We don't even know if they exist. We don't even have the numbers that we had in the 70s and 80s. What the hell happened? The the thing that happened is you get these asshole roadblock people who come in. I don't even care if we had DNI at that time. If you don't have an organization that is chartered to do the right thing at the right time, you can get rid of every advance that was made. And you know what? This is why, Robert, and I appreciate your passion around this, because this is real, is that this is no longer about the color of one's skin. It's about the person that they are. Or and it's not. about our country. Exactly. So, so do, why is it that it's taken so long, in your opinion, Robert, uh, that now business and societal issues being, you know, indelibly linked? I mean, this has been going on for years, but now it seems to be something new that's actually quite old. It's new, but quite old. I think that shame on the people who were in, the, in these sectors that were quiet while they were bullied, because mm. I call it bullied. And the thing is, think about this. Mm. And I say this to anybody who, claims, uh, who com- complains about their organization. I go, but what did you do? Right. You got if you got over 10 years with an organization and you have no backbone, you're a coward. If you got 20 years and you haven't spoken up with respect and they don't listen to you, then you're a failure. So one, you're a coward and then you're a failure. And a lot of these people, as they're pointing fingers, I go, they failed. You failed. Um, so it's but I have hope for one. Or there's a reason why I have hope. But I'm going to say that real quick. But what I wanted to share with that example is a lot of organizations, even it happens with mergers and acquisitions with a company that I work for, we were chugging along really well on some things. Then we acquired a company that was what? About one and a half times our size or maybe almost two times our size in personnel, not yeah, in revenue. This was where, this was where again? Rob? At Kraft. At Kraft. And then because we wanted to appease them, we opted to put some of their top guys in. And guess what? At that time, they had no sweet, sweet, C-sweet chocolate people or Hispanic. Zilcho. And if they did, I'm talking about discernibly. When you walk into a room, you know that person. None. You know what I mean? Uh, they have what I was, you know, I call us people like myself. We were like baby VPs, you know, and we're like, not the real VPs or baby. But, um, but you know, um, and so we incorporated them. Great people. But all the, a lot of the processes that we were doing beforehand died because they didn't buy into it. The company culture of the corporate ring where we used to say, how many do you even have a company ring? Hey, how many diamonds you got? That was our corporate bling to show how good you are. 
They killed the culture. So you can lose culture in a couple of years. You can lose values in a couple of years. You bet. But that's why I respect Procter & Gamble and companies like that. That's why I respect the IBM, some of the legacy companies. And I hope these new companies, the tech companies as they're coming up, they find the culture that they want to be. And regardless of a merger and acquisition, they figure out this is what we're going to be. We're not going to let a Yahoo come in and change who we are. That's why I respect Hershey. They had somebody come in from one of the companies we acquired who tried to say, oh, we're going to sell it. But then the Hershey trustees came in and said, mm, you know, we give a lot to charity. We do a lot of good things for people. And then Mondelez tried to make a merger with this company, too. And they're like, another community. They're like, eh, what's your culture? What's your thing? I mean, we get all this money flipping and everything. And I made money off of these things. But I care about the country. I care about the culture. I care about the companies. And I think the, the challenge is the best organizations know how to hold on to who they are, regardless of who they bring in, and they're able to value the people that they have and not hide behind the shareholder thing. I mean, I, that's just a cowardly thing. Um, so, Robert, let me ask you yeah. this. What, 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 let's, let's close with this. What are you hopeful for? Because you are going to bring it up. What are you hopeful for? You know what I'm hopeful for? I'm hopeful for everybody that was born after 1980. Do you know why I'm hopeful for them? Because there are things that our country has promised to do relating to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and fairness for all. And that post-1980 child has a relationship with their parents that we didn't have. And I'm proud of them. You know, our parents were top-down management, but this generation's parents, post-80s kids, they're like, my kid's going to be my friend. So what do you want to do? Well, my parents weren't like that. You know what I mean? They're like, well, what do you want to eat? Well, because they made their kids a friend, <laughs> their kids are challenging in the way our generation never did. True. I have people in my generation that come to me and give me stories about things that they noticed when they were coming up, the black women that helped them, you know, of a friend who, uh, you know, LBGTQ who said, oh, these black ladies took me in, watched over me or this and the other. They didn't tear up, share that with their parents. How do we change things if the Caucasians don't know that there are people that look like you and I that take the time out to help their child? Well, according to the media, we're always asking for things. But how can that be? There's 500,000 black nurses out there who do ever writes about the black nurses and doctors. You know what I mean? So what I love about these kids are their parents taught them an ideal that the parents didn't actually live up to. They talked about it or their parents' parents didn't live up to. And the kids are like, hey, mom, dad, you said these ideals about everybody being equal, everybody being treated fair. My friend loves who they love. Why should I care? My friend is uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, black, you know, Cuban, you know, Jamaican, South, you know, Tanzanian. I just like them because I like them. Why can't they come over? Right. That generation is why I have hope. Our generation did not question our parents like that. When the parents said no, they didn't say no. You know? Um, so that is why we've seen such a blend of what we've seen on the streets and the protests. I mean, when I saw things happening where you had some Caucasian five or seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds holding signs for some things that have happened in this country. Cause these things have always happened. We just have video to see more of it. Well, this is the best time. We just know more of it. 
But when you have these little children challenging their parents, parents that would have never come out on any such, and the kids are like, but he was our janitor. Why did this happen to him? He was a good guy. Or somebody goes, well, that was my football teammate, or that was my classmate. Why did that happen to her or him? I have hope because of that generation. And that generation is changing. I think they're making America live up to the ideals that we say that we were and that we will be. And I think it'll just increase our soft power if we listen to it. You know, Robert, I appreciate you just pouring your, your head and your heart into this conversation. Is I, if I were to put a bow on it, um, is it you're someone that maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe other than the love of your parents and your family, maybe society didn't live up to the level of expectation of the dignity that you felt you earned. But now, uh, maybe I understand why you retired early, because it seems to me that you're on a quest for human dignity for others. Any final comments? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think you nailed it, or pretty much believe that you nailed it there. I am on a quest. Um, and it is domestically and internationally. I love our country. And I, I, I believe that if people like you and I and our people in our circles aren't doing what we're doing, there's a level of chaos and anarchy. Um, I fear less governments, types of governments, more chaos and anarchy. Uh, and uh, the good people have to work and help to bring order so that we all have freedom and liberty. It's time to let go, Robert. It's time to let go. Robert, enjoy it. Pleasure. And as we always say at the end of the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others want and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much, Robert. Really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.